Hello there, it's Shane here. This is just a pre-intro before the actual intro to the podcast. Uh, so this is just our recording from Sunday, but just letting you know we've had to kind of edit it and chop it up a little bit because this Sunday we were doing some updates from around our church community, some stuff that's going on, and some of it, yeah, just wasn't uh, the best to have uh, published out to a general audience because there's some things that are personal in nature in there and some things that need to be reframed a bit. So uh, there will be a few like edits and interjections during the podcast, so try not to be too alarmed if you're running with this podcast and don't run out into the road or anything. Um yeah, so there's a, a little chat with me around a bit of scripture at the start to frame some things and then an interview with Jane from Beautiful Bunch, uh, who was wonderful, but we've had to um, take a little chunk out of the middle of the interview there, which I'll uh, do a bit of narration and try and connect the two bits together. Uh, and then interview with IHH people, Indigenous Hospitality House, um, Warwick and Josh. And then the end section, I've actually just cut my entire bit, which is a bit of an update from some stuff that's going on. And I'll just re-record a section there that's, um yeah, just a bit more appropriate for general dist- distribution. So, yeah, hope it all makes sense. Love ya. Bye. It's so nice to be here this morning in this relatively peaceful place compared to seemingly everywhere else at the moment. Um, for some of you, you'll be aware that this morning's like just a bit of a random, one-off, unusual morning where we're just sort of chatting through a few different things that are happening in our community, um, which may or may not be of relevance to you, but we just thought it'd be nice every now and again to um, do some stuff that uh, I'd like to fill you in on um, because I might need some support over the next little while and there's some other things that are happening in our wider church um, space and some like good news things, which is really nice. So, you know, if you ever get the opportunity to talk about anything actually good in the world, we should definitely do that. We've managed to complete like this miracle loop with the children where one of the children got really, really sick, uh, like re- like quite sick. And then, um, and then the next one, and then one of the parents, and then the next parent, and then one of the kids had to go to, go to hospital for a bit. Fine, fine. just another or two hospital trips. Uh, and then we started getting better. And then the first kid who started it all has got sick again. So we've now like completed the loop. So I just imagine from now we're just sick for the rest of our lives. So it was lovely knowing you. Um, <laughs> and it just has meant that I haven't had much, uh, A, chance to do any work, or B, brain power to do anything. So um, you're getting what you're getting this morning. This is just the slop that's getting served up. I uh, hope you enjoy it. And if you don't, uh, I, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about you. Nah. Um, but, yeah, it is really lovely to be a part of a community that is just profoundly kind and gracious and just lets us do what we can do uh, rather than trying to perform and put on a song and a dance every week. So yeah, Uh, I have been thinking just to kind of frame this conversation this week uh, about weariness. No idea why. Um, Let's just, you know, call it a gift from the heavens. Um, And and just one of the joys of my job is I just get to spend time with people within 
FNCC and just talk about life and what's going on and things. And this topic of weariness just seems to come up in the kind of post-COVID lethargy for lots and lots of people uh, who are still who still feel like they should be, you know, springing back into life, <laughs> uh, but don't feel like their bodies are actually able to do that yet. Um, and are dealing, yeah, just with what it is to rebuild a life and to deal with the weariness of re-entering the world in particular ways. And that has brought me to um, just back to that little verse for those of you who may have spent time in the past with the Bible. Um, there's this beautiful invitation by Jesus in uh, Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. So we're gonna. This is gonna be our little our little um, snapshot for the day. Our little reminder of who Jesus is. Come to me, all you all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Um, this beautiful invitation by Jesus is the kind of thing that ends up on like little cross-stitch things on like grandma's walls and stuff like that um, and little postcards and bookmarks that you might get from Kurong um, just to represent Josh's old workplace. Um, it sounds really, really twee and really, really nice and it is twee and it is nice but there's actually some really deep <laughs> kind of dark undercurrents <laughs> with this passage because You've got Jesus. <laughs> Jesus isn't talking to us here, and you know, mediated maybe. But like first and foremost, Jesus is talking to mostly Galilean peasants, um, mothers and grandmothers, and craftspeople, and mostly subsistence farmers. Lots of people who are just getting in the process of getting kicked off their land because they're getting overtaxed by the Roman effing empire. Um, these people are wedged between two forms of spirituality that are killing them. Um, they're wedged between the spirituality of the Roman Empire, which is this uh, colonizing violent force which brings peace via the sword um, and forced homogenization uh, and tells people that they're now welcome to be part of the empire, but the price is that they'll um, effectively you know, lose a ton of their identity, uh, lose their ability to dissent, and uh, will get taxed until a lot of them end up losing their land, which is the thing that's kept them alive um, in a society with no social security. Um, which between that and then another spirituality of hyperpurity, and I won't go too much into the details here, but we've got to be a little bit careful when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees because um, the people who wrote the Gospels were having a war, <laughs> uh, with having a little theology war with the people who um, were kind of the descendants of the Pharisees. So they talked about them particularly not nicely, uh, which I don't think is always justified or fair. But there was definitely in the water at this time this idea of if we... Um, if we get religion just right, God will show up and free us from the Roman Empire. And so there was this kind of uh, movement of hyperpurity where religion became more and more burdensome, um, where everything had to be perfect. And as often is the case in any big system, the people who pay the price at the most are the people at the bottom, the people who can least afford it, um, the people who are just struggling to get by. And um, at the bottom of both of these forms of spirituality is this forgetting that life is hard enough already without adding extra shit onto it. Um, that for the people who are trying to get by day to day, having other stuff um, layered on top of that, um, 
is often what crushes people. And this is what we hear Jesus talking over and over again about the people at the bottom getting crushed. Uh, and what Jesus is inviting us into is not this kind of like fairy la-la land where, you know, if um, you come to Jesus, then suddenly everything gets better. A part of what Jesus is inviting us into is this idea that um, healthy forms of spirituality just don't make things worse in a world that's already difficult. It's not that um, if you come to Jesus, your life will get better, and if it doesn't get better, then you're not doing it right. It's that life is already really, really hard and really, really wearying, and let's stop making it worse um, by taking on forms of spirituality that oppress, that disconnect, and that dehumanize. And so that just felt kind of relevant to me at the moment, because I, as we'll talk about in my section, the, the three stories we're talking about, um, I've dealt with a lot of people who have kind of been spat out the other side of really toxic church environments, um, and a lot of them have left church uh, and have kind of walked in and thrown themselves into other forms of spirituality and enterprise, um, a lot of it involving capitalism, <laughs> that leaves them in a really similar place. Uh, they, they throw themselves headlong into a job they think is going to make everything better, um, and then it demands of them in ways that the environment that they've left um, did and leaves them with nothing left for the rest of life either. And so it's kind of out of the frying pan into the fire. And what I want to keep inviting us back to as a church community is recognizing that um, toxic forms of religion are really, really shit, and toxic forms of capitalism are really, really shit too. And just because one... Um, doesn't have the tag of spirituality on it, doesn't mean that it's not something that tries to direct our and take over our entire lives either. And part of what we hope to do as a community is keep on practicing different forms of living um, that humanize, that create the possibility of deep connections, that recognize the humanity of all people, um, and don't, that don't consume our lives in ways which makes difficult living even more difficult for whether it's for changing the world or for profit, um, that we're better to live whole lives in whatever form of spirituality we take on. So, yeah, we're going to be talking a bit about... Uh, I think each of the stories this morning somehow links to that. Um, we don't do much as a community in terms of community initiatives, which is kind of one of the decisions that we've made as a community for this season. This season's kind of been going on for about a decade now, so it's a good season. Uh, where one of our responsibilities as the collaborative pastoral leadership team is to measure the energy within the community and to kind of like stretch and shrink things um, according to what is actually available within the community, rather than kind of like setting some grand vision statement and saying, we're doing this and this and this, and now you all have to pay for it. <laughs> so where, where are all your hours? Who cares about what's going on in your life? It's about what's going on in our common life. Um, so we don't actually do that much stuff, uh, and part of that is because we just recognize that so many people within our community are already involved in things, in the world that are meaningful and good and true. And the idea of like putting a whole heap of FNCC branded initiatives out there would only just rob and take away from the good things that are already happening within the life of our community. So that's something we feel really passionate about. Um, but what happens through that is we get these kind of like these little clusters every now and again where things happen where just a bunch of people in our community or our institution itself just kind of ends up getting involved in stuff because that's what's happening within our community, and we can kind of just champion that and, um, and be a part of it. And one of those things that happened just by chance a few years back um, was we 
work hard to give this building away as much as possible, obviously because we're not doing lots of stuff in it. Um, this building was essentially built as a um, drop-in center for latchkey kids back in the 1920s when this is a really, really poor area. Um, and so rather than having this place closed all week, we want to make it possible for the community to access it. So one of the ways we do that is through hiring it out um, privately and commercially, and that subsidizes community space, uh, community groups being able to access it at much, much cheaper rates. Um, and in the case of one of our groups um, to just have free rent for you know as long as they'll bludge off us and um, have us hang out with them. Uh, for those of you who haven't met Jane before, um, we met Jane, who's this person here, uh, a few years back, just pre-COVID, and uh, we had, um, yeah, they were able to use our space for a couple of things, and then one day we were sitting with Jane and said, what is it that you really need? <laughs> and they said, a home. Um, so we happened to have one of our studios that we were hiring out that we were doing well enough, we just didn't need to keep on hiring out. So we were able to let um, then Merchant Road, now beautiful bunch, um, have the space and become part of our little family, which has been really lovely, and they have been, um, yeah, doing good things in that space for a few years now. But there's been major changes in what they initially set out to do and what they're doing now. So um, we thought we would get Jane to come and just chat with you about what's what, what they do and what's happening. And Jane's like now one of our best friends and part of our family. So, um, yeah. Thanks, Jane. You can even have the comfy stool if you want. Is this on? Yeah. Oh, is this recorded? Yeah. Filmed? Not filmed. Okay, cool. Yeah. As you're here. Not... Uh, no, my hair's good. My hair's good. Your hair's oh, amazing. Shit. That's what I was going to say. Um, Thank you. It's, thank you, Shane. That was a very lovely introduction. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, so I'm Jane and I run The Beautiful Bunch. So we are a social enterprise uh, working with young women from refugee backgrounds. We are a florist now and um, we have our studio is just kind of out the back there if you don't know. Um, and yeah, we work with young women from refugee backgrounds who are pretty vulnerable. If you kind of go on our, our social media, everything's like really quite sanitized and pretty and, and really like positive because we're trying to sell flowers essentially. But um, the young women we work with have very, have experienced very real challenges to finding employment here and um, all but one uh, quite new arrivals, so have been in Australia for less than two years. And we deal with some really significant challenges. So, um, you know, not wanting to kind of, I'm just mindful of people's privacy, we're a small team, but, you know, domestic violence, arranged marriages, um, what we would probably all consider, you know, living in a, some version of poverty. Um, so when people kind of engage with us online and they buy our flowers and, you know, just, and, you know, people hop into the studio and we're playing like, you know, like loud music and having a great time, I think what a lot of people don't understand and what I don't speak enough about is that underneath that we are um, providing a warm, welcome, welcoming, supportive environment to people who have real, real issues in, in, in their lives. Um, all but one have come as unaccompanied um, minors, so that obviously means they don't have family here. And for every single one of the soon-to-be six young women who are working with us, we're the first time they've ever worked in Australia. 
So it's a lot of work, um, but we, thanks, thanks to Shane and thanks to, to you guys essentially, the, the, the church community, we're able to provide a really warm, welcoming space where they're able to start to build the skills that they need, um, not just floristry skills. We have a new program where we um, focus on uh, computer literacy skills, so business administration and customer service and, um, you know, also just build those skills that they need to kind of achieve some form of financial independence and to start thinking about what meaningful work means. So that's what we do at the moment. So we're a team of nearly 10. So there's four positions, myself included, that support the soon-to-be six positions of our trainees. We do so much with pretty, pretty little, um, you know, like exemplary of... So just to, to clarify, we I speak about it in terms of a business, but... We are a charity, we're a registered charity, we have full DGR status and all, all profit goes back into our stated social mission. But we're in this kind of constant place of tension because we've got to trade to fulfil our charitable outcomes, you know, and to actually have meaningful social impact. And it's, we're, we're in a constant place of tension. I was just thinking about what Shane was saying before about capitalism and... Thanks to your support, we were able to, I suppose, continue... Well, we were able to pivot, and I've, I've spoken a lot about that. And, um, you know, be, because of your ongoing support, we were able to continue to have this space and to really take time, which is such a valuable, you know, cur currency, really. And we were able to take that time during lockdown to think about, OK, what does the future look like? What are the young women who we work with actually want to be doing? Do a lot of the young, at times mostly Muslim women, want to be in a room with 200 drunk people serving alcohol? Probably not. You know. Um, oh yeah. So that that would probably be quite helpful. So Merchant Road was this beautiful little business that I, it took me about four years to kind of really gain traction with, and. Um, it was um, basically a social enterprise that focused on events and that worked with young women from refugee backgrounds, so same, you know, kind of cohort that we were working with. But we, um, we had a storage unit and we would... Um, so we had, you know, kind of furniture and things for events in there and we would hire out spaces and run our training programs and then host pop-up dinners and the like. It... Um, we did really good things. We had some of our funding was from the Department um, of Premier and Cabinet so and, and philanthropy as well. So we were pretty well funded in the end. Um, we had a pretty good community around us, but we had no home, basically. Um, and so hence, you know, we were kind of hiring out the space and um, we looked at our studio that we were in initially and I just, I'm really passionate about architecture and design and I just fell in love with it. And Belinda, who was um, working for me at the time, actually still is, was just like, Jane, it's too small, don't be ridiculous. And I was like, yeah, but the, wall, the walls are all wide and it's like so tall and there's a piano in here, for God's sakes, maybe they'll move the piano. Um, it was too small and so we hired out the front room. What's it called? The, the read, no, read, yeah, the read room. But um, anyway, and so we did really meaningful, impactful work, but if I'm being honest and I can only kind of have, I've only come to this point of honesty through having um, the kind of successive lockdowns and that kind of quiet period, which was a real godsend for me, um, and from having this space and knowing that we could keep this space, I started reflecting on what do the girls actually want to do. And I did what I always said I did, but I never really did, and that was go over all of their statements for the last four years about what they actually enjoyed doing, and it was the floristry workshops that we used to run as part of our events training. Um, 
that was the number one clear favourite. What did they least enjoy doing? Serving alcohol, learning about wine, having to smell wine and talk about wine. And, you know, like they don't, even, even the Christians amongst them are not big drinkers, you know. And so they're not, they're not <laughs> okay, clearly not. But, um, you know, and so it was kind of this thing that we could get funding for. And I mean, I've, n- I've never said this publicly before, but if, if, if I'm being honest, you know, the work that we were encouraging them to do, and when you need a job, you need a job. I'm very pragmatic in, in that sense, but was not really fitted to, suited to them. You know, a lot of them couldn't speak English particularly well and you'd kind of be like, all right, like, you know, harden up, put on an apron, get out there and serve people and that's just what, you know, you have to do. This work is a thousand times better. It is so much more suited to their, to where they are in their lives, to their, you know, to the skills they actually want to attain, to where they find meaning, to, to building a place where they actually feel welcomed and I thought on that, I'd just speak if Shane could indulge me for another five minutes or so. Um, I was just thinking, because I've, I've done like quite a lot of media and we've talked, you know, everyone's like, how is that pivot? Like it's, you know, you managed to build this whole new beautiful business out of the ruins of, you know, the, the old one. And I was trying to think of like how and why that is. And Hello, Shane here again. <laughs> Sorry that you don't get to listen to Jane's lovely voice for longer uh this is the bit that i'm just making a bit of a connection between two bits of the interview to help it make sense uh jane is describing yeah just a bit of a process they went through when they were looking for a home as a community and uh they uh, had an opportunity which uh, at the start looked really good but in the end just didn't, wasn't really a good fit for the organisation and was a little bit uh, traumatic for her personally and uh, there's too many details in there that yeah would, she'd rather not uh, go out to the public so I'm just wedging these th- two things together and then she's going to talk about um, yeah just her engagement with our community and unfortunately this is like <laughs> it's a bit weird because it kind of she's talking about a conversation with Annika and I um, and it feels a little bit weird commentating over this because it's really nice um, but it also seems really self-serving but I'm going to leave it in there just because I think what she's trying to describe is the tone of our community and how uh, they've been able to make a home in our space because of what our community is and in this instance it was represented by Annika and I but really I think it's reflective of the space that we try and create as a church community and it comes out of our theology and out of our ethos and out of the generosity of um you as a church community so um even though it's mildly embarrassing i'm going to leave it in here because i think it's actually a massive compliment to you um everyone who is a part of this space so yeah hopefully that makes some kind of sense the next meeting that i that i talk like a but, you know, put in a professional context to speak about taking on a space was actually with Shane. And the first thing that he said to me is that I'm not here to waste your time. Like, I wouldn't kind of be demanding, you know, like these meetings of you if I was here to waste your time. And he also asked about me personally. And it's like that thing, you know, when you just like trying to keep it together and you're all fine until someone asks how you are or like is nice to you. And then you're like, oh, why did he ask me that? Like, now I'm going to cry. <laughs> you know, I was all fine until then. And it could not have been more different, the offer here and, and, and how Shane and Annika went about approaching it here. You know, and I really think that the success that we've had and, like, we're still, we're very much in still the startup phase, but, 
you know, we are building something very beautiful, really meaningful. I, I have never believed in something like I believe in what, in, in what we're doing here. And the reason that we're able to do that is because Shane and you guys have, have given us a space that I don't feel that I need to take up. You know, it's just given freely. And we feel welcome here. And it has made all the difference, you know, in how I'm able to lead our, in how I'm able to lead our team, in how our trainees and our staff feel coming to work and um, I would just like to thank you very, very much for that because all of the articles and all of the interviews I've done, both the, the original setup here and the pivot, it looks so seamless and so beautiful and so just like I just floated on in and, you know, and then I just was sitting at home pregnant and I was like, let's do flowers and, you know, like it just, sometimes I read it and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't believe it. Just It just looks all so perfect and I really feel for anyone out there who like looks to these kind of articles for inspiration in a sense because the reality is so dirty and hard and just really tough and what is missing from those articles is the fact that we, we have this community, um, you, we, we have you and we have your support and that has made all of the difference. It's meant that we, are, that, that we exist and that more than that, that we actually have something that is creating, is helping to create such a phenomenal future for some of the young women who work with us who, have, who if we close tomorrow, would have nowhere else to go. We are the only charity in this country that I know of that specifically works with young women 18 to 24 from refugee backgrounds. They face the highest rates of unemployment. They are at times a very difficult group of young women, of, of, of people to work with. You know, you're working with young women who haven't worked before. You know, there's this idea that all people who come here as, as refugees are just kind of, you know, grateful to be here and they're just these pliable kind of just individuals. No, they come here very headstrong, very resilient with their own ideas. <laughs> about how things should be done, and it can be really tough. Um, but thanks to you and thanks to your support, I feel like we are doing really, really meaningful work and making a huge change in their lives. So thank you. Was that too long? No, it was beautiful. <laughs> you don't need to know. Um, oh, there's too much to say about all of that. Um, but other than one of the great, other great gifts of my job is I get to watch Jane be um, both powerhouse business operator and camp mum <laughs> as she deals with all of the uh, rolling life crises, uh, both of her own <laughs> and um, of these amazing women. And it's just really beautiful. And it's just so lovely because my job is so easy in that I, when all this started and throughout the whole thing, I would just keep on going back to our board to say, uh, there's this amazing opportunity and this person in this organisation feels like family. Um, can we do this? And the board's just able to go, yeah, we can do that, of course. And it's just such a lovely community to be a part of where it's just, it's just not a problem. Um, and so, yeah, thank you to all, all of you for helping make space for that. It's a really, really lovely thing. And what I love, the other thing I love about Beautiful Bunch is it's just slow. It's, it's, it's slow growth. It's slow work. It's patient work. Um, and I, my job around here is mostly just to be a handbrake on um, inspiring people. Um, so between Jade, who looks after our building, who would like live here and marry the space if she could, just to keep sending her home, to tell Jane to slow down, um, 
you can only change the world so quickly um, because she is an absolute powerhouse herself um, that I just get to be the, like the kind handbrake to say, it's okay, it's okay, go slow, go slow. And um, yeah, it's a really lovely place to be in. So thank you so much for being here and being part of our little crew. Yeah. Um, our next little story is uh, from Warwick and Josh, who are from IHH. Um, and IHH, I'll let one of them tell you about what they do. But they're just going through like a little pivot of their own, a little discernment process about what's actually happening within this crew, um, which, again, is not our thing. It's got nothing to do with us. It's not our initiative. Um, we can take none of the credit. But a lot of our people in our community have ended up involved in this lovely little organization, which is um, contemplating some change as well. So... Um, yeah, if you two want to maybe just come up and really quickly chat about what that discernment process looks like, um, and I'd love to pray for you guys as well, yeah. Good thing we prepped so much work, eh? <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering, like, how we should tag and do this. Um, should we tell a quick bit of history about the place for those who hit don't a, know? Hit us with the history. Uh, as best I understand it, um, so my name is Warwick, he, him, uh, the Indigenous Hospitality House is about five blocks that away and was set up about 20 years ago uh, when a bunch of Christians, I think mostly Quakers, um, were sitting around going, we would really like to do something helpful and practical. And some of them had a connection, I think, to the healthcare system and then they knew that there was a bunch of Indigenous people sleeping in their cars outside of the hospitals 20 years ago because there was no really cheap accommodation or for them to stay in. So they knew this was an issue. They're like, yeah, we can try and sort something out there. And they uh, then went round and found a whole bunch of churches and they said, does anyone have any property that they'd like to sort of loan or give to us for very cheap for this project? And they found the Carlton Church of All Nations, which is the church at the bottom of the, of the towers in Carlton. And they said, yes, we've, we, we merged with another church and we have a manse, which for those who don't know is a, a word meaning like a special house for a, a, a minister and their family. We have a spare manse. Um, we, can, we can rent it to you cheap. Please cut me in if I do anything wrong in the story. Um, and so they had a house and they had a bunch of people and they spent a year uh, thinking about their project and interviewing people. And they interviewed a whole bunch of indigenous elders about what's a good way of a bunch of non-Indigenous people running a project that's for Indigenous people, like what, give us some tips and stuff. And so things like, actually the house should be dry, and it's always good to serve meat, that's kind of considered good, good practice, and some other principles I can't remember. Um, anyway, they set up the house, and it's been running for about 20 years. Um, oh, initially, lots of the Indigenous groups they approached said, uh, who are you, and never heard of you, and maybe we'll think about uh, you know, being in kind of contact with you if you're still around in five years. And, uh, and a lot of those groups uh, then basically are really happy that we are still around for now 20 years. And um, we exist because we are in touch with lots of Indigenous groups, especially Aboriginal liaison officers in hospitals and various social workers at various um, hospitals around the country. I sorry, around the country. Yeah, I guess sort of around the country. And you can only come and stay with us if you get a referral from one of those people. And then you come and stay... In our house, so our house is essentially two houses side by side that has a total of eight bedrooms and six bedrooms are for resident volunteers like us two um, who stay there and uh, offer hospitality and we keep two guest rooms aside for indigenous people to come and stay um, if it's anything to do with hospital related stuff basically. And for 20 years that worked all right. Like we, uh, we had lots of, we met lots and lots of people. Probably two thirds of the year 
Uh, so we, we were run for the school year to give ourselves a break. So two-thirds of the time that we were open, we would have people come and stay, and it could be just a couple of people, or it could be a couple of big families. Um, and then COVID hit, and then it all went bananas. Um, we, we had lots of discussions amongst ourselves about how bad it would be if we gave COVID to some indigenous elder who was from some remote community. So we, we shut our doors. Also, the all hospitals were shutting all their doors for elective surgery, so there wasn't much surgery stuff going on. Um, and so for the last two years, we haven't hosted many people. Um, we have always done a bit of also uh, education nights where we try and teach non-Indigenous people about Indigenous issues. Um, so we've still we'll run... Learn together. So, say again. We learn together. Yes. It's less us teaching and more we're all in this process of learning together and doing the work that non-Indigenous people need to do together of learning rather than just requiring... Aboriginal people to be the the ones who do the learning, like taking some of that, shouldering some of that responsibility of doing that work ourselves. Yeah. Mm. Um, I feel like I've talked too much. Also, and I should probably hand it over to you. Oh, oh all right. Uh, where was up to in the story? Learning circles and hosting wasn't really working. Uh, and then we, yeah, we all kind of thought COVID may not last very long, but it has kind of carried on. And so we decided maybe we should pivot in a different direction. Um, partly because there's not that much demand for us to provide accommodation because hospitals got more funding for, to provide accommodation of their own from the government and they were changing how they were doing day surgery so that they had kind of surgery done a bit faster so people didn't need to stay overnight as much. And yeah, we weren't quite sure if we really needed to function in the same way that we were doing. So um, yeah, a big discussion started amongst ourselves. And this is probably a good point for you to, to take over about what we should do. Yeah, so... Um the, the, the little timeline was suddenly we got to a point where we we're like, oh, we can host again. COVID's in a situation where it feels safe enough. And then we were like, we can host again. And they're all like, we don't have anyone to be hosted. Like, because um, particularly a lot of the guests who are coming are like friends and family of people in hospitals. And the, with the visiting restrictions super tight, it was just like nobody was coming in. Um, and yeah, the other things Warwick was saying around changes of funding and, and different things. And so then we were like, well, maybe this is a great opportunity for us to just do a bit of like realignment and thinking about what we're doing. So we're in this process, which is gonna go for maybe a, about a month or so more of like meeting with a bunch of, um, well, connecting with all the liaison officers at the hospitals, um, meeting with a bunch of elders, um, meeting with people who are connected to our community and hearing about what is it, what is it that you feel um, the IHH needs to be doing in this time, um, rather than us just making our decision going like, let's do this, um, trying to hear from uh, particularly Indigenous elders around what, what needs to be done. Um, and so, yeah, we're in the process of that. On Friday, uh, a good friend of ours, Auntie Jacko, who's um, spent a lot of time down at St Kilda working with the community there came over for this chat and like it was so funny I sat down and I was like all right we got all these questions like do 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 what should the IHH do did it and I'm launching into this very like uh non-indigenous way of thinking and strategic realignment and where should we go and da 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 da, da. and she was just like whoa chill out a bit you know um and the, our conversation was just around like 
yeah, the and the importance of relationship, the importance of going slow, the importance of um, really just like following what bubbles up naturally from relationship. And I think interesting you're saying, Warwick, about like in the early days, I think the biggest influence that those indigenous elders who helped shaping the project offered us was an awareness that relationship is at the heart of this project and rushing to like, let's tick all these boxes, let's bang, 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 is such a non-indigenous way of thinking about projects like this. And I mean, this is just my feelings after our chat with Auntie Jacko, my chat with Auntie Jacko on Friday and it's just like, oh wow, even, even in the way that we're trying to do this process, it's so easy to get swept into a very, very Western way of, a very non-indigenous way of thinking. Um, so yeah, that's the humbling that we're sort of on the process of uh, constantly. Um, and the other thing that is exciting, I guess, is that more and more there have been requests coming in from hospitals for us to be hosting again, generally. Um, maybe not the same as before, but it still it feels like there's that demand still there in some ways. Um, and it's great in this process of doing of chatting to people just to hear, um, yeah, the the parts. You know, like where the the liaison officers see us as like quite an important um, place. Um, so, yeah. Could talk about learning computing, but I'll do that another time. Um, no, just follow us on Facebook and you'll see things. Um, just because to ritually humiliate you, um, I'd like to pray for you too, just while you're here. <laughs> just because Warwick looks so keen on sitting down. Um, loving God, we believe that you are a participant um, of the life of this world. So we ask for wisdom and humility and kindness um, and that the right things would bubble up um, as IHH goes through this discernment process and we thank you so much for the wisdom of the indigenous elders who are able to speak into this. Um, yeah, let good things happen. Amen. Hello, it's me again. You're back with me in my office rather than with me at church. Uh, it's all beginning to feel a bit like a strange multi multiverse of some kind. <laughs> Different versions of me, all of them terrible, but there you go. Um, yeah, so this last bit, uh, we uh, did a much more raw version during church, but I'll give you kind of a edited version here, which I feel more comfortable with going out into the public space. But it was just basically an uh, update on some stuff that our church is kind of involved in um, through a few ways, but mostly it comes back to some stuff that I'm currently involved in. Uh, and it, yeah, involved a little bit of the story of our church and a little bit of my story as well. Most of you know that I came from um, mega church adjacent spaces and Pentecostalism. Uh, when I moved from New Zealand, and uh, there, while there were lots of things that I loved about those spaces, there were things that I was increasingly growing uncomfortable with as well, uh, and decided that I didn't really like the person I was becoming or the kind of Christian um, that I was, and so wanted to explore some other ways of being um, faithful to the Jesus story, and that meant moving jobs, and um, for some life reasons as well, it meant moving country, uh, and when I 
came over here and began um, to slowly be involved in North Fitzroy, this uh, story kept on coming back up for me where through people who are coming and finding our space as a bit of a safe container as they uh, transitioned um, through some things in their faith or their church experience or their life, um, we I, met, I sat with people and heard uh, the same story over and over again from people who had come out the other side of particular kinds of church spaces and this um, and since I'm talking about uh, from mega churches and large churches and caveat hashtag not all mega churches uh, not all mega churches are bad and not all mega churches are unhealthy but there has been a distinct pattern in the stories and people that I've sat with which uh, started off in the tens and is probably now in the hundreds now uh, of people who in all kinds of ways um, feel like they were have suffered trauma on the other side of these spaces whether it's through um, theology that has been harmful for them um, or whether it's through um, being insiders and participants in a culture that they felt um, didn't take care for them uh, take care of them um, stretch them beyond a healthy capacity um, and led them into spaces where they ended up doing things or taking part of things or hearing things that they're profoundly uncomfortable with uh, I say all that just to kind of preface the fact that um, a little while ago um, it came out that a journalist who um, I have a strong affection for, um, his work, did an expose into a particular church, um, well he actually just wrote an article about a particular church in New Zealand, um, and it's a comp very complex space because I have family members involved in that church, so it's a little bit personal for me. Um, of people within uh, that church who began telling stories of their experience um, in it uh, and the ways in which it has left them um, traumatized and really damaged. And when he published this piece, um, which I'll put some links up on the internet to, um, he was inundated by other people who have been involved in that church and in other churches um, that are in relationship with it and uh, with all kinds of incredibly harrowing stories uh, and I will we'll again post the links so you can make your own mind up about what you feel about them but very long story short um, it's pretty brutal um, I know a lot of the people who wrote those stories um, they wrote them under pseudonyms but I already knew of their stories and it's something that I have tried to um, process privately wherever possible and not speak uh, too loudly about public publicly because um you know all the usual things you don't want to be the kind of person dragging other places down where you might not understand them properly um where you've got relationships inside those places uh that mean a lot to you so you might be trying to do private work there uh and but ultimately when all this stuff came out i uh, along with my friend Frosty who many of you know felt like there weren't people from within church spaces um, talking about this stuff publicly and saying this stuff is real um, we have witnessed it firsthand and it's not okay and something needs to change and so we decided to um, have a, a conversation <laughs> about this on uh, Frosty's podcast called In The Shift again I'll post a link to that as well if you feel like opening up your own portal to hell <laughs> um, and just started discussing this stuff and then we became inundated with more emails and stories than we could possibly um, manage to process of people who um, have uh, suffered yeah, incredibly traumatic and harmful things in churches and then have been gaslit on the other side of that who, who feel like they um, have been 
ostracized and blacklisted and cut off from community and have uh, spent years trying to rebuild their lives emotionally, physically, financially. Um, and yeah, I don't want to drag this out too much, but it's but just to say it's been a bit of a harrowing journey for Frosty and I. We are not the victims here, um, but sitting with stories, um, yeah, through Instagram and through emails and through phone calls and Zoom meetings and things um, with more stories than we have the capacity to really process very well. Uh, it's been really intense and really full on um, and we have done our best to carry on that conversation um, and involve other voices in it. Uh, evidently it is reaching a lot of people because his podcast has kind of gone <laughs> a bit bananas um, and now we have sort of become a little bit of a like touch point for people who have um, survivors of these spaces um, to kind of gather around and help make sense of their story so we are doing whatever work we can to con con um, continue providing a voice for people um, because the common thread that we've experienced through all of the feedback that we've had is the fact that people say I've never told anyone this um, and silence and isolation have been really common factors in this stuff so people who have experienced really really grim and horrific things from much beloved public figures um, and again none of this is a surprise to any of us um, who have been involved in this stuff we know that it's been going on not maybe not to the extent um, that it's been going on um, the volume of it has genuinely surprised us even if we know that the character of it hasn't been um, but people have come out the other side of that and have felt isolated because they know that if they tell their story publicly people will come after them they've been gaslit for years most of them don't understand many of the tools and mechanisms that have been used against them to keep them silent um, lots of people feel shamed for things that they've done inside these systems and feel ashamed that they've let things be done to them as well and that promotes silence and so we are really trying hard to make a space uh, or multiple spaces where people can actually tell their stories and can actually um, ask curious questions about what they've been through and where they don't feel like they're alone and they're the crazy ones and they're the only people who have seen this and it's an incredibly difficult thing to do when you've been involved in large public church spaces with a lot of positive momentum and affection for the people involved to say, hey, I've been trampled on and run over and hurt and violated and this person isn't, or this organization isn't what you think it is. It's an incredibly brave thing to tell that story and often re-traumatizing too. So people often don't. So what started off as one podcast has become quite a few um, we have tried to start a couple of like little um, communication communities where people can you know touch base with other people who have been in similar spaces as well but we are working um, really hard with the resources that we've got and we've used some church resources in terms of time as well to um, deal with some of this uh, to be present and um, be a voice on behalf of the church to say that uh, in the name of Jesus traumatizing people is not okay it's not worth it it's not alright it doesn't reflect the God that we know and love and we consider this quite central to the work of our church community and the vocation of our church community at Fitzroy North um, so we're going to keep giving a little bit of time to it uh, to support people as best we can especially because even now still publicly there's very few voices from within the church saying um, this stuff is real we believe you and we need to do something to stop it and change these systems so 
I'll post some stuff up uh, on the internet, uh, on the Facebook page about this stuff so that you can do your own reading and your own listening if you want to. Um, if you have had um, religious trauma or church trauma, just be careful with it because some of the stories are very harrowing. But I just thought that we would fill you in because uh, this stuff is largely, this particular conversation is largely focused on New Zealand at the moment, but we're getting lots and lots more Australian stories as well. Uh, and there are Australian journalists working um, thank goodness on similar things over here and so it might get closer and closer to home in terms of our church community as well uh, and as a person uh, both Frosty and I have had uh, people within the systems try to get us fired before <laughs> so they will come after you and they may come after us as well and um, it's also just really really heavy to carry I was a lot more emotional on Sunday about this um, but um, trying to keep a little distance for the sake of the podcast but um that it's it's really harrowing and it's really heavy um sitting with these stories um as people bravely share what their experience has been so yeah if you can keep us in your thoughts and prayers that would be really lovely send some good vibes um yeah and we'll do our best to um to sustainably help support where we can uh and that's it for today so um I hope you are having a lovely week and we will see you all again soon. Bye-bye.